You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant. To shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Hey listeners, we have a treat for you this week with our first ever episode focused on the D-League. For this episode, we brought on Chris Reichert, who is the associate editor and senior D-League writer for The Step Back on the fan-sided network. Chris once had the good fortune to sit next to former NBA player Kareem Rush on a Southwest flight. He used his time to have the age-old debate about who was the better basketball player in the classic movie White Men Can't Jump. Kareem went to bat for Woody Harrelson's character Billy Hoyle, while Chris took the side of Sidney Dean, played by Wesley Snipes. Hey Chris, thanks for joining us. How's it going? Life is good, man. Just uh, battling the cold weather up here in the Pacific Northwest, but all is well. So we have a new collective bargaining agreement now. What do you think the likely benefits are for D-leaguers, and are there any drawbacks? Yeah, I think the main benefit, the one that people will see are the two-way contracts. You know, um, they're adding two roster spots to every NBA team. And those are going to be two-way contracts for players, probably fringe players, like maybe a Pierre Jackson this year, uh, maybe in the past, maybe like a Tim Frazier, guys like that, or or maybe even younger guys, you know, that they want to keep on and they want to keep their rights, but they want to really develop them in the D-League. Those players are going to get paid a little bit more, so that's always a benefit. You know, Mark Stein's reporting they'll get about fifty to seventy-five thousand, which is great. It opens up sixty additional roster spots for players, which is another great thing for D-League guys, fringe guys looking to make NBA rosters and get an opportunity. That's the main one. I mean, I think the one other benefit that maybe is getting lost right now is that the NBA minimums have come up forty-five to fifty percent. So minimum contracts are gone up from around five hundred fifty thousand to about eight hundred twenty thousand which is going to affect D-League players because the 10-day contracts come January are based off the minimum salaries for whatever, how many years they have in the NBA. So if they're a rookie, instead of getting a number based off 550, next year they'll get a number based off 820, which is a big difference. So those contracts are going to be worth more, which is more money in their pocket, which makes those call-ups even more valuable. The only con really that I can see initially on the surface is there's no raise in pay at least initially, that we can see for the for the standard players in the D League, you know, the two way contract guys are going to get pay raises to that fifty or seventy five thousand. The other guys are still going to be making nineteen to twenty six thousand. You know, and that's a, that's a small number. We were really hoping, um, and reports, previous reports dating back to you know two three years ago, were that when this CBA came up, they were going to have some money for this for the D League players. Now the argument will probably be, well, we did. We got the two-way contract guys some money, um, but that's 60 players, you know, out of roughly 300 that are in the D League. So, you know, they helped about a fifth of them, which I guess is a start. But hopefully, you know, eventually we'll get higher contracts across the board in the D League. Yeah, that seems like progress and a substantial increase for the two-way players. But overall, we definitely would like to see raises across the board. It's difficult. I mean, you know, because they didn't design this league to be a career league. So it's not designed for a player to stay here for, you know, seven, 10 years, earn 70,000 a year and and have a decent career, you know, as a as a pro basketball player. I mean, that's not a ton of money, but that's still more money than a lot of people in America make, you know, to play basketball. So 
it's it's hard, you know, to gauge what what should they get paid when they also are on the doorstep of the NBA, and and that's really where the big money is. Right. In terms of the current setup of the D League, what do you think the advantages are and the disadvantages aside from just the financial aspect of it? I think the big advantage is that. I mean, you can play in Erie, Pennsylvania one night and you can play for the Minnesota Timberwolves the next night. I think that's the advantage of being in the D-League. You know, if you're overseas in Italy or Spain, you could be playing in a, in a better league, per se, with better players, making more money. But you're not going to get an NBA deal midseason, most likely. I mean, we've seen it sometimes where players will leave overseas teams and come over here midseason. But it's not it's not happening all the time like it is in the D-League. So I think that's the main thing is that opportunity that that carrot on the end of the stick is right there, you know, for these players. They're also playing in NBA schemes. They're learning NBA lingo. You know, the coaches that are down here often get jobs in the NBA. So they're working with quality coaches as well. And they can really work on some of their shortcomings before they get that NBA chance, whether it's in summer league the following summer or NBA training camps or what have you. They can really hash out some of those things that they struggle on. I think one interesting use of the D-League that the NBA has been employing is sort of using it as a testing ground for new rules, implementing new rules that they want to try out. I know ones that they've done in the past are testing out shorter games sometimes or uh, larger referee crews this year. What do you think the impact of some of those experiments have been? And do you like that use of the D-League for that purpose? I think it's really smart. You know, I, I think it's a good way... To kind of gauge if these changes first, what what kind of effect are these changes going to have on the overall gameplay, you know, and the fan experience, you know, like they have a coaches challenge in the D League as well that they can use in the fourth quarter and overtime. That's something the NBA doesn't have. They've been experimenting with it. This is the second season. Last season they used it for the entire game. You could challenge, and then this season they they shortened it to fourth quarter and overtime. So they're they're tweaking them as they go. They used to also use the FIBA goaltending rule, you know, where you could hit the ball off the rim. They they took that away last season. I really liked it. Another thing I think that might actually get implemented in the NBA that they're using this year is on offensive rebounds, the shot clock goes to 14. So it's a shorter shorter shot clock on that offensive rebound, keeps the game flow going, forces kind of the offense to make a quick, uh, maybe a faster decision on their second possession that they get. But like you mentioned, they're working on four and five man referee crews just to see kind of how that works. So it's smart. I mean, use it as, a, as you said, a testing ground or a labs per se, um, get a feel for how that rule is going to work. And then if you don't like it, you just get rid of it and it doesn't have any impact on the NBA. But if you do like it, you know, maybe you implement it for a season or for the preseason and, and see how it's going to work. Yeah, it's also interesting to see the way the relationship between NBA teams and the D-League has evolved in the last decade. We see now that Almost every NBA team has a one-to-one relationship with a D-League affiliate, many of them really using them like a farm system like we see in other leagues like the MLB and some European leagues. The most prominent example this year being the Memphis Grizzlies, who have started six former D-League players already this season. How do you see that trend continuing, and do you envision a future where all 30 NBA teams have a one-to-one D-League affiliate? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're at 22 right now. So we're at 22, you know, we're going to be at 30 probably within the next three to four seasons, you know, four seasons, probably max you're looking at, you know, we're going to have every team is going to have their own affiliate. And not only with numerous players in the D league with, or in the NBA with experience, like you mentioned, Grizzlies, like Jermichael Green started in the D league and he's having a really, really good season for them. You know, these guys are just waiting for their opportunity, you know, to to come out and play well. Andrew Harrison's another one. He spent his entire rookie year last year 
as a domestic draft and stash from Memphis. They had his rights all season, so nobody else could call him up. And now he is contributing for them, you know, in the NBA. He's struggling to shoot a little bit, but he's he's still contributing pretty well. So yeah, I mean it's it's gonna continue. It's only gonna grow stronger. I think another place where you're seeing a really big jump is how often they're using it for assignments. So for the Grizzlies, guys like Wade Baldwin going down and getting time because they just don't have minutes for them on the NBA squad. I mean, you look at the Kings, they're sending down Scala Bissier, Georgios Papagianis, and Malachi Richardson, you know, every other game pretty much, you know. So it's risen from 187 assignments in 2013-14, and last year was a record 321 assignments for NBA players down to the D-League. So it's a big jump. This year, we've already had 159, you know, and it's still pretty early in the season. So that's another place. They're using it to really develop their guys. They're closer to their NBA teams. They run the same schemes. They're able to really work on stuff, you know, down there in a live game setting, which is a big difference from practice. You know, I don't know if you've seen an NBA practice there. It, it's like a walkthrough. I mean, it's a glorified walkthrough. So it, it, nothing's really full speed. So if you can get them down there and say, hey, Wade Baldwin, we want you to go work on your pick and roll, pull up jump shots, you know, for this game or these two games. That's something they have the ability to do. And it doesn't really matter if he makes them or not. You know, it just matters that he's working on them and improving them as he goes through his rookie year. So that's a that's a big benefit for teams right now. For a guy in a situation like Lebissier, what is the calculus behind whether or not an NBA team makes a decision to just have a guy play five minutes per game in the NBA or be in the D-League? Because I know from what you said, it seems like you believe it's a lot more valuable to be on a D-League team. But I know the argument can be made conversely that there's something you just get from being around the NBA team more often that that's so invaluable. So what are a little bit of the pros and cons of that? And am I right in assuming that you believe it's more valuable to get the lion's share of minutes in a D-League game regularly as opposed to not playing much on an NBA bench? It's hard to, I guess it's hard to quantify. I mean, I would agree with you. If if the Kings said, hey, we're going to go youth movement and give Scalabese here 15 minutes a night, I think that's more valuable than playing in the D-League 30 minutes a night. But if it's two minutes here, three minutes there, DNP for five games, I mean, I think he'd, it's better suited for him to be in the D-League, at least getting minutes and working on things that he can improve. The competition level is obviously not the same, but it's getting better. So it, it really depends on, I guess, what their NBA, what the NBA team and coaches philosophy is. Are they going to play these young guys right away? You know, are they going to pull a Miami Heat and kind of give these young guys minutes and give them a chance? You know, a la Josh Richardson and players like that, who I don't think many people expected to contribute right away. You know, we saw Norm Powell for the Raptors do the same thing last year. I don't think that was greatly expected from him right away. So if guys are going to get minutes, then I think it's much more valuable to be with the NBA club, like you said. But I think it's got to be like, you know, on average 10 to 20 minutes for them to really have value there. I mean, if it's like I said, if it's a couple minutes here, a couple minutes there, I, I think it would be more valuable to be in the D League. You're right. I think it goes on a case-by-case basis. And just to highlight two teams, no offense to the Kings, but they're a little bit dysfunctional in recent years, and they're not really winning. Whereas if you're with a team like the Spurs, maybe not really playing much still would be comparatively more valuable to just be with the club, learning how they do things up there. So I think it really depends on the situation and, like you said, the number of minutes. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. Who would you say 
is one of the better D-leaguers that NBA fans, for the most part, have never heard of. I, th- I think one one guy that people haven't heard of that's that's really good is Kevin Murphy. Kevin Murphy went to Tennessee Tech, a small school. You know, it's not a not a big name school, so you wouldn't have known him from college most likely unless you were local. He's 26. He's about six five, six six. Plays on the wing. Can just really light it up. I think he had 25 or 26 today in Grand Rapids game. He plays alongside Ray McCallum and Jordan Crawford whom I, I presume we all love. If you don't, don't tell me because I don't want to not like you. <laughs> um, I like him. <laughs> but yeah, Kevin Murphy's one. I think Chris Evans is another one. He went to Kent State. Um, he's a 6'8 forward. Plays. He's 25, plays for Canton. So that's Cleveland's D-League team. Um, and he's having kind of a breakout season. Both of them spent a couple years overseas and now they're kind of getting close to that NBA prime or that basketball prime, you know, 26 to 29 kind of area. And they're, I think they're trying to make that push, push for a chance to make an NBA roster. It's good to hear about guys like that because a lot of times the better D leaguers that I end up hearing about are former prospects or people that slipped in the draft and then they just can't get to the NBA yet, but they might eventually, but they're guys that were really good in college at places we've heard of. So a little bit different. Pierre Jackson was one of those guys at Baylor, and he had an Achilles injury just like Tim Frazier, who is now flourishing in the NBA with the Pelicans, another D-League guy who really improved and showed his stuff in the D-League. Tell me a little bit about Pierre's situation. He's putting up gaudy stats. I, I saw he was at 58, I think, a couple years ago he dropped in a D-League game. Yeah, yeah, his rookie year, he had 58 for Idaho. So, yeah, I mean, he's – it's difficult. It's hard because if you only look at the stats, it's it, some players can look just amazing. You know, but scoring a ton is great, but his efficiency has been just ridiculous. He's shooting over 50% from the floor, over 40% from three, you know, and like 85% from the free throw line. So, I mean, he's he's dangerous right now. He's he's a different type of player, I think, than Frazier, um, even though they play the same position, because Pierre Jackson is much more explosive of an athlete than Tim Frazier is. Pierre Jackson's less of a facilitator, too. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, Frazier's more of a pass first, you know, um, get your teammates involved, much more kind of guy. And I think teams want Pierre to score. I wrote about Pierre earlier this week, comparing his game to like an Isaiah Thomas for the Celtics, just by how well he plays out of the pick and roll. Now, obviously not to that level. I'm not saying Pierre can be a top 10 scorer in the NBA like Isaiah Thomas. But, you know, you give Pierre in the right situation, let's say, like on the Rockets, you know, and he's a guy getting 15 minutes off the bench for the Rockets. Pierre's scoring 10 points a game for the Rockets if he gets 15 minutes and, and has the ball in his hands. So he can score. I mean, it's, it's a lot of these guys are just about the right opportunity. And he, and he is a willing passer, but his role right now in, in, on his D-League team is to score. And he's just doing really, really well with that, especially out of the pick and roll, which they use heavily in Texas where he's playing. You can just give me a yes or no or elaborate if you want. But for Pierre Jackson, do you feel good about his odds in the near future of getting called up? I don't know if it's going to happen midseason. I mean, all the rosters are full right now, unfortunately. I think if there were some teams that had spots open, you know, that that would change. I think in a couple of weeks you're going to see some spots open up because January 10th, I believe, is guarantee date in the NBA. So a lot of guys end up getting waived. You know, around trade time, guys get traded and then waived by their new team. So I think spots will open up for him. But I think teams want to see him stay healthy for a full season. And then I think it's more likely that he latches on with the team this summer, gets in a training camp and, and gets the right yeah. opportunity. He might he might get a call up, but I, I don't know that he'll stick for the full season. I think it might just be, you know, a 10 or 20 day thing for him. 
near future is kind of a broad term. I just meant in the coming years. So that that would count, I think, if next year <laughs> gets it. But I'd be, yeah, I'd like to see that. I wanted to ask you also about Sean Kilpatrick. He's really excelling. I know the Nets aren't very good, and it's easy for him to get a lot of minutes. But from my limited understanding of the D-League in recent history, he seems to me like one of the more successful cases in recent memory. What do you see from his jump and his current game so far? I'm really happy for Sean, man. He's another guy who's a really good guy. I interviewed him a couple of years ago when he was in the D-League, and you could just tell you know, he didn't want to be overseas playing. He wanted to be in the NBA, and he was going to ride this thing out until he got a chance. So I'm, I'm really happy that he's playing well. Uh, you mentioned he's getting a lot of opportunities, but you still got to make your shots. You still got to make good plays. You know, so he's playing on a, on a on a bad team. You know, if we're if we're being kind, but he's playing well. When he first came to the D League, he was it, to to me, anyways. I didn't really like his game his rookie year in the D League. He was very much so kind of a me me first kind of guy. He got traded that year over to Delaware and just really flourished there, man. He played next to Jordan McRae, who's on Cleveland's roster now and stuck there. And they just lit up the D League and played with like a joy that they just really liked playing with each other, shared the ball a lot, not only with each other, but shared the ball a lot with their teammates. And you could just see his confidence grow. He started hitting these difficult shots that you knew he was going to kind of come back to life eventually, but it, it's he seemingly hasn't. You know, he's just played so, so well in the NBA, and I'm I'm just really happy for him. And it's not just scoring in the NBA. He's rebounding well for a guard. He's, he's sharing the ball a little bit. He's not a big facilitator. You know, he's a guy who's going to come in off the bench for a quality team and, and score some points. So I'm happy for him, and he's good in it. And like you said, he is a, he is a really good success story for the league. Yeah, and continuing that talk of recent success stories for D-League call-ups, I know – Earlier in the interview, you already talked about Andrew Harrison. Some other guys we wanted to highlight were DeAndre Liggins with the Cavaliers. He had a really great all-around season in the D-League last year, putting up 13 points, over six rebounds, seven assists, and shooting really well from three. And he's making a big impact for the champion Cavaliers. And also Rodney Magruder for the Heat. Can you just take us through again just how they reached the NBA and take us through their games? Yeah, I mean, Sioux Falls was such a fun team to watch last year. Sioux Falls set a D-League record last year with 40 wins. Uh, so the D-League only plays 50-game seasons. So they went 40-10, and 10, ended up winning the championship, and had a number of great players, Jarnell Stokes, Briante Weber, DeAndre Liggins, Rodney Magruder. They played on the same team in the D-League, so you can imagine. You know, they're both contributing in the NBA. They played very well. Liggins, you know, Liggins specifically has always been a defensive guy, even when he was drafted by Oklahoma City. He just never could put it together offensively. And he wasn't elite enough defensively to stick on a roster like, say, an Andre Roberson for them. You know, so he had to pick up his offense a little bit. He went overseas for a couple of years, came back. And like you said last year, proved that he could knock down some open shots. And I think that's what really pushed him over the edge. You know, and Cleveland said, hey, we want this guy. He's going to come in. He's going to play 100 percent every single play. And now he can actually hit shots when he's left open, which he's going to be left open because he's playing with Kyrie Irving, Kevin Love, and LeBron James. So he he's a great story. Magruder is probably an even better story. Uh, Magruder played at Kansas State, really struggled his rookie year in the D-League, just didn't get a bunch of opportunities. And last year just really transformed into probably the best 3 and D player in the league. You know, another elite defensive team. Their team as a whole was the best defensive team in the league. That's why they won all those games. And then late in the season, I think in the playoffs, he averaged like 24 points a game for them, which was crazy because they had the MVP of the league, Jarno Stokes. They had Bronte Weber again. I mean, they had a lot of guys who could score. And 
I really thought the Heat would keep Breontae Weber over Magruder, and I was kind of really pleased when they kept Magruder instead. I mean, I love Breontae Weber, but Magruder's really playing well, and I think he's playing like 25, 26 minutes a night for them. And, you know, his stats aren't gaudy by any means, but he's coming in to hit open shots and play defense. And that's what I think NBA teams are looking for in the D-League. They're looking for rotational role players. It's it's very rare that you're going to find Hassan Whiteside in the D-League. You know, it's very rare. It's going to happen, you know, probably once every 10 years. But it's what you want is a rotational player who can contribute to your team. And, and that's what Liggins and, and Magruder are doing. Yeah, and then returning to Andrew Harrison, who was part of the Iowa Energy team last season that also included James Annis and Jarrell Martin, who have both alongside Harrison started for the Grizzlies this season. You talked about earlier he's had some offensive struggles. What do you think might be causing those struggles for Harrison? You know, last year, at least initially, it was it was shot selection. I haven't watched a whole bunch of Memphis games just to be, you know, completely upfront with you guys, but... You know, he developed really well over the course of their season. And and really a lot of it was shot selection, decision making. You know, he went from averaging a lot of turnovers early in the season to, to fewer and fewer as the season went on. His percentages got better as the season went on. So I think some of it is just a natural jump in, in competition. You know, I mean, he's a big guy, 6'5", you know, so he can shoot over some people. Um, but he's he's never really been a knockdown shooter. So I think he's still just developing that trait and and doing that you know, on a good team is, is sometimes difficult for a young player. So it, it's, he's still developing and I, and I think he can improve it. There's nothing wrong with his mechanics, at least from when I watch, it doesn't look like there's anything wrong with his shot, you know, so it might just be as simple as, Hey, have a couple, string a couple good games together and then he can get back to where his averages should be, you know, in the mid forties from the field. And another guy whose story is really interesting to us is Gary Payton, the second, not just for who his father is obviously, but his road to even getting into the D-League, going through some years in community college before then ending up at Oregon State and then spending time at Rio Grande with the Vipers. Do you think he has a shot at eventually reaching the NBA? Yeah, I think he's really athletic and he plays very, very good defense for a 6'3 guard. I think the issue with Peyton is he doesn't have a position, which isn't too big of an issue in the, in the positionless NBA that we're going to. But he's not a great shooter. And he's not particularly fast with the ball in his hands either. So it's not like he can, you know, if Pierre Jackson couldn't shoot outside, he could still be effective by driving and attacking the paint, you know, and, and blow by, blowing by his man. I think Peyton is much more methodical. He's kind of like Paul Pierce-ish in that way where he doesn't look like he should be able to get by you, but he does. And, he, and he's really athletic. I mean, he's he's much more athletic than Paul Pierce ever was. But he rebounds really well for a guard. He's got decent size for a guard at 6'3". But he's shooting, you know, 30% from three and he's getting open looks. They have a lot of talent on the Vipers squad. So um, a lot of those are uncontested threes that he's just not knocking down yet. But I, but I think he's got a chance. I mean, I, I, you know, Houston basically almost kept him this year. He got a fully guaranteed deal from them and then they waived him, which was kind of surprising. So he's a guy who's earning, you know, who already earned half a million dollars. And now he's he's just kind of rolling the dice in the D League trying to get another call up. So. Um, I think this summer, for sure, he'll get he'll get a lot of options as far as summer league goes, and and I'm sure teams will be knocking down the door to try to get him in their training camp. Aside from Pierre Jackson, who we talked about a little earlier, when call-up season begins January 5th, when the 10-day contracts become available, who are some of the most likely candidates for call-ups? Uh, I think one name that, that I've been really impressed with this season is Jalen Jones. Uh, Jalen Jones played at Texas A&M last year. He's 6'8". 
I've been calling him Draymond Green Light for the D League. I mean, he's he he can defend positions one through four. You know, he he moves the ball really well. He's super fluid with his movement for a six eight guy. He can handle the ball. He can be the the role man in the pick and roll, or he can be the point forward in the pick and roll. He's shooting it well from outside for for again for his size around like thirty three thirty four percent. Um, so I think that's one to watch out for. Another one that we've mentioned a couple times or that I've mentioned is Briante Weber. Briante Weber is just a guy who can affect a game without scoring at all, kind of akin to like Patrick Beverly. I mean, he's just a pest, you know, and that's kind of his calling card. That was his thing at BCU. You know, he's like 12 steals away from being the NCAA all-time leader if he didn't tear his ACL at BCU midway through his senior year. And now he's adding, you know, a little bit of offense to that. He's super athletic threw down a windmill earlier this year is, you know, six one, six two guard. So uh very good. Some some more recognizable names, probably Lamar Patterson, played for the Hawks last year. Now he's with uh Reno's D League team. Corey Jefferson, who was originally drafted by the Brooklyn Nets. He's with Austin, the Spurs D League team. And um Elijah Millsap, who had, you know, a year and a half, two years with the Jazz, uh Paul Millsap's brother. He's with the Northern Arizona Suns, another guy who's like six five, really good two way player. So those are probably the top five other than Pierre Jackson. You mentioned a lot of really exciting athletes, and I'm really looking forward to seeing those guys come up to the NBA when their numbers are called. Outside of team need, what are some other factors, both on and off the court, that you think NBA teams tend to emphasize when deciding whom to call up, or even if they're going to call anyone up? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question because I think some fans overlook that. They say, well, you know, these guys are just killing it in the D league. I wonder why they're not coming up. Well, there's probably a reason they're not coming up. Some of it can be their attitude, you know, whether that's on or off the court, some of it's off court issues, you know, their personality, are they coachable? Are they not coachable? Are they doing their own thing when they get out there? Are they involving the team? Um, Some of it, unfortunately, is their history as well. I mean, if you've got, you know, a reputation, you know, sometimes that precedes you and, and it's more teams are apprehensive to give you a chance. So I think, you're going to see some of that stuff too. And that's why sometimes you see a guy get called up that nobody really expected because maybe they're a super high character guy who the NBA team has no problem having them be, you know, on the end of the bench because they're going to be a rah-rah guy. They're going to be great in practice. They're going to do everything the team needs them to be. And they're going to do it while they keep their mouth shut. You know, other guys aren't uh, accustomed to doing that and they don't want to be a 12th to 15th guy and not play at all. They might make some noise if that happens. So I, I think it's a great question, and it, it definitely goes into team decisions. You know, when I talk to scouts and things, they talk about that stuff all the time. So a lot of times, I mean, it, you got to be elite at something if if they're going to overlook some of that stuff in most cases. Yeah, that makes sense that high character might be a priority unless a player is just off the charts athletic. Aside from Hassan Whiteside, whom you mentioned earlier, what's been one of the best D-League success stories you've seen, maybe the most unique? Yeah, I think the most unique is is Jonathan Simmons for the Spurs. You know, I think it's been kind of heavily covered. I think Sham uh, Sharania wrote about it for the Vertical earlier this week. You know, he started in the D-League on a $150 tryout. They didn't draft him in the D-League draft. He wasn't an affiliate player out of an NBA camp. He just came to a local tryout, paid 150 bucks, made the Austin Spurs, spent two years down there, and just improved and played his ass off, man, and then you know got his opportunity with one of the greatest organizations in sport. <laughs> and and then when he gets his time for the Spurs, he plays well, you know, and he I'm sure he does everything Pop asked him to do, and 
Um, you know, he plays great defense. He's super athletic. He's had some really big dunks, you know, in his in his short time in the NBA. And and that's just a cool story to me, man. I mean, you know, there's not a lot of pro leagues that offer tryouts for players, let alone players who end up trying out and making the team and then making the NBA afterwards. I mean, it's almost like, you know, the old school movie about Mark Wahlberg where he's plays for the Philadelphia Eagles, you know, and he tried out and made the Eagles, you know, back in the day. And then that was a true story. So it's almost kind of akin to that, but it's it's happening for us right now. So it's it's cool. It's it's a real cool thing to see these stories like that. Chris, as we wind down, I have a two-part question for you. The Vipers employed a really unique style of play, just wide open, all those threes. I thought that was really cool, just an innovative way of playing. I'm curious to hear if there are any similarly unique styles that are being run right now, and also if you could shed a little bit of light on the development for coaches, because we've just been talking about players, but... I know that the D-League is also an opportunity for coaches to get their start and, and get more experience and exposure. Yeah, no, the, the coach aspect is big. It's another one I think some fans overlook. I mean, Earl Watson, who's the head coach of Phoenix, was an assistant coach for the Austin Spurs two years ago. And now he's a head coach in the NBA. I mean, it's happening for coaches, too. So it's a cool thing. I think 12 head coaches in the D-League got NBA jobs this past offseason. There was only 19 teams last year. So 12 of the 19 got promoted. That's um, a lot. Yeah, so it's it's amazing. I mean, and it, and it gives openings for new coaches to come in and get their opportunity as well. I mean, we have Jerry Stackhouse who's a coach in the D-League this year. How cool is that? I mean, so there's nothing really crazy like, you know, Maury Ball, you know, which the Vipers started with. And then now Houston's really kind of taken off with as well over the last couple of seasons. Two years ago in Reno, we had the system. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the system out of Grinnell College. Um, oh, yeah. He's, they had the guy that scored over 100 points. Right. right. Yeah, they had Jack Taylor who scored like 130 or something crazy like that. You know, and they had that. And that and that was the Kings D-League team who ran that out two years ago. And they were lighting scoreboards up, man. Regulation games with 170 points. I mean, it was bananas. They played zero defense, you know, but but they were just run and gun. Get, get up the court and do it. This year and, and in more recent years, I think – you know, it's becoming a much more reputable league, which is going to get rid of some of those gimmicky offenses and teams are running consistently what they run in the NBA. So you're seeing you're seeing guys in, in Maine, you know, which is Boston's team. They, they like to get up and down the court. They want to run and gun. It's more probably than Boston, but they run a lot of the same sets if they can't get out in transition. You know, Santa Cruz, who's Golden State's team, they have Casey Hill at the helm and he runs kind of a balanced offensive attack which Golden State doesn't run because of their, you know, three-headed monster. But, you know, in essence, they do that when their second unit comes in. So Stackhouse runs a really balanced attack where he's playing 10-man 10, 10 rotation, which you normally don't see in the pro game. Um, but they're doing really well, you know, in their second year as, a, as an expansion team. And then Ty Ellis is another name that I thought was should be mentioned. He's with the Northern Arizona Suns. He's been in the D-League. This is, his, I believe, this is his fifth year, his first year as a head coach. And they're just... They're just killing the league defensively, and they have guys like Elijah Millsap, Johnny O'Brien. They get Derek Jones down there, who's a rookie for the Suns on assignment, and he is uber athletic. I, he might be more athletic than anybody else in the NBA. Like, man, maybe save Zach Levine and Eric Gordon, but you know, besides those two guys, he is supremely athletic. Just Google Derek Jones D League, and you'll see what I mean. I mean, it's ridiculous. He's he's already had probably five dunks better than anything I've seen in the NBA. 
Wow. You know, it's it's crazy. So they're they're really fun to watch. So no, no nothing real crazy, but some quality names down there, some quality guys doing good stuff behind the scenes in the coaching ranks. So I'm excited for those guys too. Man, it's I really got into covering this league because I like, like you guys said at the beginning, the stories that you know aren't named guys. I like the guys who come out of nowhere and really just play really well and just knock your socks off. And and then eventually, you know, a year, two years down the road, you see them on the NBA roster and, you know, it just makes me feel good about covering those guys. So that's, that's kind of why I got into this thing. It's obviously hard when you have a product so good and exciting as the NBA, but personally, I feel like the D league and its players and even its reporters, Chris deserve more exposure. So I'm really happy to have you on. It was fun and educational to learn more about this league. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you saying that. It's it's fun for me to cover it. Like you said, it's it's our little niche league, but it's it's getting bigger, man. Once we get to 30 teams, I think it'll be even more important for the, for the NBA clubs, and you'll see more coverage for the league and the players, hopefully.